Luke chapter 14, verse 16. And said he unto him, this is Jesus talking, answering a question about somebody that would be bidden to eternity, that great supper. A certain man made a great supper, and he bade many, sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, invited, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, I beg you, I ask you, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife. Enough said. And therefore, I cannot come. So I'd like to talk to you tonight on this subject, making excuses or making decisions. Please be seated. I love powerful Sundays and practical Wednesdays, but Sundays should be practical and Wednesdays should be powerful, but there should be a rhythm in what we do. It's not all preaching and not always reaching for lost people, but it is strengthening the body of Christ. So tonight, Lord willing, in the next two Wednesday nights, I'm going to be teaching kind of along this line of decisions, making wise decisions. Uh, but there's a story behind this message. I've shared a, like a line of it here and there before, but several years ago, uh, maybe a decade ago, I was talking to a young man. He was not doing very well in life. He lacked motivation. He was rather listless. He lacked a healthy relationship with his father. Uh, in our conversation, as I tried to talk to him and encourage and help and give a little guidance, he just kept making excuses. And he had a lot of legitimate problems in his life. Certainly, they were very real. But no matter what was suggested, his default response was an excuse for his lack of behavior, good behavior, and his lack of motivation. And at that time, and to this day, when I look back on that conversation and that individual, I felt compassion for him, and I still feel compassion for the circumstances of his life. Life is not fair. And in case you weren't here when I said it, a fair is a place where you go ride rides. And I've learned that it is not what happens to you, but what happens in you that determines your destiny and makes the difference. Things will happen to you in your life, but it's your response to those circumstances that matter. The life of Joseph, Daniel, Jesus, and others, they teach lessons to us that you can keep a right spirit when life is not fair. You can be sold out, forgotten, lied on, and come out on top when God exalts you in due time. So you've got to control your spirit while the circumstances of your life might be out of control. I've been listening to this young man, suggesting things that might help him, trying to encourage him, felt like we were getting absolutely nowhere. 
And the statement that I'm going to say that I feel like was a word from the Lord to him in that moment. I shared it on Graduate Sunday, June 14, 2020, just the line in my message on acceptable losses. I reviewed it the next Wednesday night, June 17, 2020, in a Bible study entitled, By Any Means. And what I really felt to say to him, and I looked at him and I tried to be as kind as I could, because I wasn't trying to hurt him or knock him down again. I said, you need to stop making excuses and start making decisions. Because for every problem that he faced, for every obstacle, for everything that had happened to him, instead of making a decision to overcome or to do the right thing, he used all of those things as an excuse to go the wrong way and do the wrong thing. Stop making excuses. Start making decisions. An excuse is a reason that you give in order to explain why something was done or was not done or to, in order to avoid having to do something. You make an excuse. Sometimes an excuse is an apology for something or trying to remove blame, maybe blame shift from yourself to someone else. An excuse uh, is to make an apology. And sometimes excuses are legitimate. Sometimes excuses, as I said, are to shift blame. I was researching this in the Bible, Bible programs and online, and someone wrote about what they thought were the top ten excuses made in the Bible. Ten. The snake made me do it. Eve said that. Nine. The woman you gave me made me do it. Adam said that. I would have died if I wouldn't have eaten some of that red stew. Esau said that. The rivers back home are a lot cleaner than these over here. Naaman said that. Six. I'm not keeping count, right? My family ain't much to speak of. Gideon said something like that. Five. I don't speak no good. <laughs> Moses said something like that. Four. It's only a few bleeding animals. That's what Saul said to the prophet Samuel after he'd offered sacrifices in violation to the law of God. Three. I'm too young. Jeremiah said that. Two. Got to go bury my father first. That was the man that Jesus called and most likely his father had not yet died. And maybe the number one most lame excuse in the Bible, in this writer's opinion, was I threw this gold into the fire and out came this golden calf. Now I'm sure you can think of other lame excuses in the Bible. We're not going to have a testimony service right now. But what is the lamest excuse you've ever heard? What is the lamest excuse you've ever given? Now I read about excuses at work, excuses at school. I decided to not include them in my message tonight. It's the same old stuff you've heard your whole life. The dog ate my homework, you know. 
etc. There's some pretty funny ones, actually. There's an old southern gospel song. All the southern gospel fans will know this song. It's called Excuses. They're terrible recordings, or I would have played it for you tonight. Excuses, excuses. You'll hear them every day. And the devil, he'll supply them if from church you'll stay away. When people come to know the Lord, the devil always loses. So to keep those folks away from church, he offers them excuses. And then there's some pretty funny verses to that song. And the summer is too hot. The winter is too cold. The springtime when the weather's just right, we've got somewhere else to go. It's up to the mountains, down to the beach, visit some old friend, or maybe just stay home and relax and hope some kin folks drop in. Then those church benches, they said, they're too hard. The singers are way too loud. You know, I get nervous when I'm sitting in a crowd. The doctor told me, you better watch those crowds. But you go to the ball game because you say it helps you relax. Got a headache on Sunday morning, backache Sunday night, but you're well by Monday morning. Got to go to work. Something about sickness, but that was before COVID. The preacher, he's too young, or maybe he's too old. The sermons, they're not hard enough, or sometimes they're too bold. His voice is much too quiet. Sometimes he gets too loud, needs to have more dignity, or he's just way too proud. And then there goes on and on. He didn't shake my hand and blah, blah, blah. Excuses. People make excuses. And excuses, while they may be legitimate in some cases... They probably don't really help. They don't change the circumstances. They don't change you. They're not helping you get ahead. Now there's enough material on this subject in the Bible to, to teach an entire series. So today I'm going to summarize even some of those top ten excuses in the Bible. And I'm going to focus on the text that I read and try to make some application that you can take home and hopefully apply to your life to stop making excuses and start making decisions. Amen. When God called some of the great leaders in the Bible, they responded with excuses about their inability. They wanted God to know that they were not capable of doing what he was calling them to do. Now here's what I know after 44 years of ministry that you are never able to do what God has called you to do. If, he, if you could do what he's called you to do in your own ability, then you wouldn't need God. And everything God ever calls us to do is beyond our ability, and by relying on him, we watch him come through for us. So, Moses, when God came to him, he said, Lord, I am not eloquent. And then here's the line I want to focus on. Heretofore nor since. He said, God, before you came to call me to deliver these people out of Egyptian bondage, I was not eloquent. Now that we've had this talk, nothing's changed. If you really want me to do this, then you should heal my speech impediment. And he said, I'm of slow speech and a slow tongue. Of course, God did not let him off. When the Lord came to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, he said to Gideon, Thou mighty man of valor, 
and immediately Gideon defaulted to his feelings of inferiority. He said, Lord, why is all this stuff happening to us? Asking God why doesn't really help your circumstances very much. And then he tells the Lord that he's the poorest kid in the poorest family of the poorest tribe in the nation of Israel. And they have been savaged by the Midianites for seven years. So they're already poverty stricken. He's the poorest of the poorest of the poor. He just really doesn't have what it takes. And Jeremiah, I said it in the top ten, but in Jeremiah 1, when the Lord came and called him, you know, Jeremiah said, Lord God, I cannot speak, for I am but a child. Now, I don't think he was a child, but he knew he was a young person. Don't you remember Paul telling Timothy to let no man despise thy youth? But even in your youth, be an example of the believers. Be a godly person even when you're young. Don't let your youth be an excuse. Amen? And the Bible says to flee youthful lusts. So no one has an excuse to not serve God no matter your circumstances nor your station in life. Then there's lots of excuses in the Bible for sinful behavior. These are in the top ten. Two of them are. Adam... You know, the Lord comes to him, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve are hiding, covering themselves with fig leaves. The Lord asks him what he's done. Adam tells him, he said, I'm afraid. And then Adam says, the woman that you gave me. So really, God, this is all your fault. If you would not have created Eve, she would not have succumbed to the temptation and given me the fruit, and I would not be in the shape I'm in right now if it wasn't for her, and ultimately it's because of you. I know you've never blamed your spouse, and you've never blamed God, but in Genesis 3, Adam did, and then the Lord goes to Eve and says, Eve, what have you done? And she does what people do. She made an excuse. The devil made me do it. She said, the serpent beguiled me. He tricked me. And I ate that fruit. Now, God had given them a clear command. It wasn't like something they couldn't figure out. It wasn't some mysterious thing they had to unearth. You know, God told them what to do and what to not do. But she had an excuse. When Cain killed his brother Abel, hit his brother in the ground, the Lord came and asked him about Cain, Abel, and Abel said to God, Am I my brother's keeper? What an excuse to tell God, Am I, I'm, not, I'm not responsible for my brother. I have no idea where he is. And the Lord said, His blood is crying to me from the ground. Saul, he's in that top ten list. Now Saul is the epitome of an insecure leader. He shouldn't be. He's head and shoulders taller than anyone else. He starts out as a humble man, but his insecurity leads to pride. And there's an occasion in 1 Samuel 13 when Samuel says, I'll be there on the seventh day. Saul waits around. Nothing happens. Samuel does not come. He waits the seven days. And all the people are really nervous. The King James said they followed him 
trembling. And Samuel doesn't come to Gilgal. And the people are scattered from King Saul. So finally Saul says, I've waited long enough. He's really freaking out. He's afraid. He gets a burnt offering. He offers it to the Lord. And the Bible said in 1 Samuel 13, 10, as soon as he made an end to offering that offering. You know, I wonder if Samuel was like, you know, looking at his watch. You know, they didn't have watches. He's just kind of waiting for Saul to get impatient and jump the gun. So Samuel walks up and Saul comes to greet him. And Samuel says, what has, have you done? And, and Saul gives three excuses. That I saw the people were scattered from me. I'm, I'm not doing well in the polls. So I'm capitulating to the opinions of people. And then he said, you told me you were going to come in seven days. And I waited seven days. It was still the seventh day. Samuel kept his word. But you didn't come when you were supposed to come. And then the Philistines, they're assembling. They're gathering together at Michmash to try to attack us. So, so Samuel says to him. So then he says, I forced myself in the King James. The message says, I took things into my own hands. I'm tired of waiting on God. That sermon on be still and know that I am God is worn out. So I just took things into my own hands. You weren't here, so I stepped out of kingship into priesthood, and I offer the offering. And Saul, Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've, you've violated the commandment of the Lord, and the kingdom is going to be torn away from you. So Samuel gives, Saul gives these three reasons People, my popularity's waning. My preacher let me down. Man of God, you delayed and thought you were going to be here, but you didn't come through on time. So, And then the enemy, I saw that enemy out there, and I just gave in to all of those things. In the New Testament, there's a man named Felix, and he is listening to Paul preach, and he's shaking under conviction for his sins. But he tells Paul to go away. And he said, when it is a more convenient time, I'll call for you again. Now is not a good time. Making excuses for sin. Proverbs. I love Proverbs. I think you know that. I love every book in the Bible because it's God-breathed. But the Bible said that the Lord overthrows the words of the transgressor. And then he says, a lazy man, a slothful man is, needs to go to work. But he sits there and he says, there's a lion without. I shall be slain in the street. So he makes an excuse for his laziness and doesn't do what he should do. The one talent man of Matthew 25 says to his master, I knew that you were a hard man. That was his excuse. And he is called a lazy and wicked servant. And James tells us in James 1 that we should never say that when we fall into temptation that God tempted us. God is not tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt anyone with evil. But everyone is tempted when they are drawn away of their own lust and enticed, James said. And when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. And finally on this little section, 
in the judgment, there is no excuse. There is no excuse. When you and I stand before God, no matter what happened to you, no matter what was offered to you in temptations, when you stand before God, there will not be one excuse. There's nothing that you will be able to say in that moment that will get you off the hook. You cannot blame anyone else in that day. Romans 1 and 20, speaking of pagan people, just by the invisible things of creation, Paul said that they are without excuse. And in Romans 2 and 1, just the next chapter, in this same three-chapter kind of a courtroom scene where Paul is like a prosecuting attorney and he brings all the world in the courtroom and declares them guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, kind of the heart of this passage. But Romans 2 and 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. You judge other people and you condemn yourself. So I just want to say that people try to make excuses for sin, for their decisions, for their actions, for not living for God. But none of those excuses really matter in the judgment. It's important that we really make sure that we stop making excuses and start making decisions. Now that leads me to our text. When Jesus called people to discipleship, various people give, gave different excuses for why they didn't follow him, right? Sometimes it was overt, and sometimes it was more subtle, more diplomatic. And in Luke 14, the story we read about, it is somewhat like that. Luke 14, 16 and 17. Jesus is answering, remember, something, a statement a man made in Luke 14. And Jesus, he said unto them, a certain man made a great supper, and he invited a lot of people. Now, what I want you to see here is there was an invitation. It wasn't a last-minute get-together. It wasn't some, you know, kind of impulsive thing. He invited people to come to a dinner that he had planned. And verse 17 says that he sent his servant at supper time. This would have been the evening meal according to the original language and what I've studied of this. And to say to them that had been invited. So again, wasn't like a last minute text message. Hey, can you come over? We know we've got pizza. This is something that had been planned. At supper time, he said to them that were bidden, come for all things are now ready. We've been working on this. You've been invited. Now it's time to come eat. This is going to be a huge dinner party. No one should have been unprepared. No one should have not come because it's implied that they all said they'd be there. Because we later learn that they go out and get other people when these invited guests, probably referring to the Jewish people, they don't come. Verse 18. And they all, everybody say all. They all with one consent. Again, I think this speaks of national Israel. They all with one consent began to make excuse. And then we'll talk about what each of them said. But I want you to think about this. The plans for the banquet are rocking along really well. There's this impressive list of guests that have been invited. They've all accepted. 
The banquet is now ready. And then suddenly things start falling apart to this plan. The timetable of the host just doesn't seem to fit with the schedule of the guests. So they start making excuses. Now when you read this, they all with one consent, these excuses seem to be coordinated. Sometime between the invitation to the dinner, the invited guests must have collaborated and conspired to decline. The Greek in this says it doesn't appear anywhere else in Greek literature. It really means that they kind of they were thought alike. They acted in unison or concert. They acted as one. It's coupled with they all. It's like a social catastrophe for this man who went to all the trouble to plan this great dinner. And the guests who initially accepted are all begging off to a person. They're all turning him down. Hmm, that makes me think about this. I've never really analyzed this particular verse. That there's something behind this coordinated effort. It's like a collusion to boycott the banquet. Sounds like the news media, when they start beginning to parrot the same talking points. You know that they've been talking together before they've been talking to you. Well, it's true. I know some of you didn't like that, but it's still true. But anyway, that's not really my sermon. But it did make me think about excuses that are being made left and right in our culture, blaming everyone else. So, first man, let's back to the Bible. Here we are, Luke 14, 18. Already read this first part, make consent with one, ex one excuse, make excuse. The first, everybody say the first guy. I have bought a piece of ground, and I need to go see it. And then he's so polite, I pray thee, have me excused. Now, have you ever had anybody tell you something in a real nice way that you know it wasn't really all that nice? They were being nice, but they really weren't being nice. And you knew you saw through that, and you were trying to be nice back while they were stabbing you in the back, something like that. Anyway. Now, think about this. Remember, I already told you that you know, this is a dinner. It's a banquet. It's not in the South. It's not lunch. It's supper, right? I know dinner is controversial. This is the evening meal. It gets dark. They don't have spotlights. Who in their right mind goes to inspect a piece of land in the dark? It's a dinner meal, and his excuse is, I bought some property, and I've got to go check it out. That's not a really good excuse, but that's what he said. There's a second man, verse 19, and another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. That's probably ten oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Now, if you earn a living with some type of equipment and you buy some new equipment, I know you're really pretty antsy. I would say chomping at the bits, but most of you don't know what that means, but horses do that and plow animals might chomp at the bits. They're ready to go, and he wanted to go try it out. And you got a new truck, 
They bought a tractor, got a backhoe, a new computer. That doesn't seem to fit with the backhoe. But anyway, you just want to try it out. But remember, it's going to be dark. Those oxen don't have headlights. It's a really lame excuse. Well, I bought some oxen. We're going to have to go check them out in the field. We're going to plow a little bit tonight. You're not going to plow tonight. You, you could come to the dinner. You're not going to miss anything. And you could go plow tomorrow. But that was the lame excuse. Verse 20, and another said, I have married a wife and dropped the mic. <laughs> Therefore, I cannot come. He didn't have to explain any more than that. Now, under the Old Testament law, this, this man might have a legitimate Excuse, because under the law, when a man was married, he was, he was exempted from war for a year. Deuteronomy 24 and 5, in case you're taking notes, he will not go out to war, not charge with any business, stay home with his wife for a year. Wouldn't that be great? A leave of absence, like paternity leave for a year, but no paternity, you just got married. Well, this excuse may apply here, but... But maybe not. I started thinking about this guy. How long had this wedding been planned? How long had the dinner been planned? So we can't get too deep in trying to apply every little word or thought or behind-the-scene cultural nuance of these scriptures. But, but most likely, the wedding wasn't an it was not an impromptu wedding. It wasn't a shotgun wedding, right? But that's his excuse. I can't come. Now, if you think about it, these three excuses, were any of them sinful? No. Bought land, bought a new tractor, got married. None of those excuses were sinful. They didn't have to say, no, I'm going to go rob a bank and I can't come to the dinner. Nothing like that is even said. But if you think about it, the excuses that these people gave were similar to things that get ahead of God in our lives. Like property, jobs, family. Family's really important. Your home, your stuff is really important. There are sensual commitments that we all have in life. But sometimes they become the greatest rivals to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus looks at these three people and throughout his writings, Luke 9, he talks about those who want to follow him. One disciple said, I'll go with you wherever you want to go. And Jesus said, I don't have a place. Birds have their nests, foxes have their holes, I don't even own a home. Another man, Jesus called him, follow me, said, I've got to go back and bury my father, probably implying, go back home, stay with my dad, take care of the family business till my dad dies, and then 
After I get that settled, then I can come and follow you. It was probably not I need to go attend a funeral. But you can go study that on your own. I think I've done that. But Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Come follow me. And then he invited someone else, Luke 9. And they said, let me just run back home and tell everybody goodbye. And Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I wasn't going to get into the plow much, but back then like a handheld plow, some were double yoked, some were like a single, like a stick. If you look back at old Bible land customs, and if you look back, you know, and you're plowing with an animal and you've got the plow in your hand, and you keep looking back, you're going to plow real crooked rows. And Jesus said, you're not fit for the kingdom of God if you keep looking over your shoulder because you can't look back. You've got to look ahead. All of these claims seem to be just regular things. In Luke 14, this same chapter, Jesus said, if you come after me and you do not hate, and it means love less, your father and your mother, your wife and your children, your brothers, your sisters, your own life also, you cannot even be my disciple. This is the same chapter. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now there are lots of principles in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, about taking care of your spouse, having a healthy marriage, having a healthy family. I am all about it. And on our pastoral team, if there's a family need, we want to say, put your family first. But when it comes to true discipleship, nothing is ahead of Jesus Christ. Even in the Bible. This is not an excuse for being a bad spouse. But if an unbeliever departs, that believing spouse that stays in the church is free. So here's the deal. Jesus Christ is to be the Lord of everything in our lives. And then Jesus says this. If you were going to build a tower, shouldn't you sit down first and count the cost? Figure out whether or not you've got enough to finish that tower. Because what you don't want is an unfinished project, half a tower. And every wa everybody walks by and say, yeah, that's the tower that he started and he didn't have enough money to finish it. And what Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, then you need to sit down. You need to make up your mind that no matter what comes into your life, that you're determined to finish what you started. Then he says another example. A king going to make a war with another king. Doesn't sit down first and he consults to see whether he can take 10,000 men into this battle against an army with 20,000 men and win. And if he can't win, then he waves the white flag and he finds a truce. He finds conditions of peace. And Jesus then applies it. So then, likewise, Whosoever he be of you who forsaketh not all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now I know that's very strong language. It's not really on the oneness of God or baptism in Jesus' name, speaking in tongues or, or, or internal, in, inward or outward holiness. It's about fundamental discipleship which underlies everything. Doctrine, lifestyle, everything. This is that decision part of living for God this is the grit that we bring to the table with the grace of God that he gives us that we make up our mind. That we stop making excuses and we start making decisions.
Amen. If you think about these three excuses that are in Luke 14, the guy that buys the land, the guy that buys the oxen, the guy that gets married, those three, those three men, they did not violate any of the Ten Commandments except the first one of the ten. In Exodus 23, the Lord said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That dinner was typical of an invitation into the kingdom of God. And while the legitimate needs of life were there, it was the fact that each of those three men put other things ahead of God. Jesus said, Seek ye first. I wish I would have put this verse in my notes, but I didn't. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things, land, ox, you know, shall be added unto you. The things that non-Christians spend their every waking moment fixated on, our Heavenly Father provides that for us when we put Him first in our lives. Stop making excuses. Start making decisions. Amen. There will always be what seem to us to be viable excuses to not walking in complete obedience to Jesus Christ. God has a way of getting right to where we live, to the rich young ruler. Just go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. He didn't tell everybody to do that. But money, gold was that guy's God, right? So for him, that was what discipleship meant. For you, it might be something else that is in competition with the Lord. And tonight I just want to encourage you, I would even say challenge you, to stop making excuses about the gods you put before him. And start making decisions. Start making Stop making excuses about a lack of responsibility in areas of your life and start making decisions. Well, here, here's, here's where people sometimes fall down. They, they look around and they find fault, imperfection in other people, in institutions. So here's a big revelation for you tonight. Everything in life except Jesus is flawed. The government is flawed. The economy is flawed. Your company is flawed. Your friends are flawed. Your church is flawed. Your spouse is flawed. Don't tell him or her. Yea, verily I would say unto thee, you are even flawed. And I am flawed. But when it comes right down to it, you can't pick them apart and make excuses for not being committed to God and to the people that you should be committed to in your life. Stop making excuses. Start making decisions. Your decisions are what define you. Your commitments shape you. You go to college for a certain thing, you become what you give yourself to, and if you commit yourself to the right things, it shapes you for time and also for eternity. 
instead of making excuses, make a decision, make a commitment to your marriage, if you're married, to your family, to your church. Do everything in your power to make those relationships work. Don't run away. Don't play the blame game. Don't make excuses. Make decisions. Like Joshua did, he put everybody on notice. Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. I love those two words. They're repeated by Paul in the New Testament. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I'll just stop right here. Not part of my sermon really, my message. But sincerity is not enough. Truth has to be coupled with sincerity. And sincerity has to be coupled with truth. And I think Joshua says it here first. Serve God in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood. He's referring back to Abraham's father, Terah. The flood here is probably the river Euphrates. On the other side of the Euphrates, your fathers worshipped idols. And then in Egypt also, the gods that were served there. And serve you the Lord. And if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, then just why don't you decide who else you're going to serve? You're not going to serve Almighty God? Then pick your God, Joshua says. You're going to serve the gods that your father served on the other side of the flood, those gods that Terah served and Ur of the Chaldees. Or, he said, are you going to serve the gods of the Amorites, those Canaanite people in whose land you dwell? Pick your God. You've got to pick a God because you will serve something. It's not like you're not going to serve something. You may think you're not, but at a minimum you're going to serve yourself and make yourself your own God. But Joshua says, here's some choices for you. The gods served all the way back there in Ur. The gods of Egypt are the gods of the Canaanites. But then Joshua says, but as for me, I can't control what any of you do. But as for me, I'm making a decision. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord.